following audio is a Sunday sermon from Red Church in Blackburn, Australia. For more information about the church and its ministry, please go to www.redchurch.org.au. To launch us into this is this quote, I don't know if anyone's heard it before by St. Arrhenius. I came across it about 15 years ago and it's something that has sat with me, stayed with me. In parts of it, I agree with parts of it, I disagree with it. But there's this mystery in this statement by St. Arrhenius that the glory of God is man fully alive. Anyone heard this quote before? It's relatively well known, but it's the sort of quote that the more you think about it, the more that it ministers to you. And it speaks about this partnership and this union that God longs to have with us. And it's this interplay between our lives and his glory manifesting itself because he chose us as his image bearers, which is a mystery you can never get your head around. But what you will notice is how we're all born to reflect something. And there's no greater way than seeing this in the lives of little kids. They do this all the time. One of my nephews, uh, the first word he said was cheers. And he said that because my sister and brother-in-law, good Presbyterians, um, would say grace and then say cheers before every meal. And then one day he's in church, too sick to be in, in kids' church. They hand the communion around and he's an extrovert. And so he yells out, cheers! I'm like... It's very fitting. A good friend of mine, uh, her son, he's four years old. I was having a cup of tea and he keeps coming to want to play. And I'm like, I'm playing cups of tea at the moment. I'll come and play with you when we finish cups of tea. I walk into the lounge to um, play with him. His name's Isaiah and he was doing this. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. We'll have a think about it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll have to get back to your crew next week. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm playing phones. Just mirroring mum and dad. You see this in the kids in our church. You see this in Gideon. You see this in Olive, who is a mini-me, Terry, walks like Terry, talks like Terry, temperament like Terry. I asked her, what do you want for your birthday this year, Olive? And she said, I want a bag. So I'm thinking like a bright yellow, cute kid's bag. She's like, no. She went and got her mum's bag and said, I want a bag like this. You'll have your stories. We've all got them because it never stops because right within the soul of who you are and in your identity, you are wired, you are created to reflect something. All of us reflect something for good or for bad. We are reflecting something and it's God's heart that we reflect his glory. To help us unpack this a little bit more, I want to uh, have a look at these senses, eyes and ears. I'm sure you've contemplated the question before. If you could be blind or deaf, which one would you choose? Or if you had to be blind or deaf, which one would you choose? Hands up if you would choose being blind over being deaf. Hands up if you would choose being deaf over being blind. Yeah, that's most people. That's me too. What I want to read in setting up the scene for today is um, an excellent, from an excellent book called The Humiliation of the Word... And Jacques Ellul, who's a French philosopher, who's a little bit cryptic but very profound, talks about this. I'm going to get you to um, just have a look at this picture here while I read this to you. Um, If you're not an auditory learner, I encourage you to listen, but listen as I'm speaking to this picture. I look out in front of me and perceive the sea lit up out to the horizon. I look around me to my left 
and my right, and I see the limitless straight line of the beach and behind it the dunes all in space. With my gaze, I make this space my own. The objects are clear and plain. I see the wind blend over to the ground, bend over to the ground, the reeds that keep the dunes in place. And I record these images one by one, and their juxtaposition shows me the real world in which I live, the world around me. I am at the centre of this universe by the means of my gaze which sweeps across this space and lets me know everything in it. And by combining these images of reality, I grasp it as a whole and I become part of it as a result of my looking. The very fact that I express myself in this way shows how inevitably my sight makes me the centre of the world. It lets me know what is to the left and what is to the right, what is near and what is far away. And all of reality unfolds itself to me little by little. Without sight, I would be suddenly deprived of the very possibility of grasping reality and of situating myself in space. Now, wherever you are, whatever is to your left, to your right, there are images that your eyes get a grasp of and you shape a perception and a sense of reality by that. And by very virtue of the fact that it's your eyes that are looking at the world, you are the centre of the world you are creating. But it's our sight that helps us to see. It's an incredibly powerful sense. I'm now going to get you to close your eyes. The picture's still up, but you can't see it because your eyes are closed. I'm going to talk about hearing. I hear noises. The wind is blowing through the pine trees, and in the distance the sea roars. I can judge its force and its condition by the sound of the waves, by the sound of the waves, and the pine cones crackle. I hear them bursting. Their sound tells me how hot it is. And the sequence of sounds sometimes forms a symphony. Noises come to me. I do not turn my ears to the left or the right, toward a certain space, spot where I suspect there might be something to hear. I direct my gaze, turning it spontaneously toward a certain face, toward a landscape which awaits me. With my eyes, I am the subject and I decide what I want to see. But with sounds, they come to me and I receive them when they are produced. They form a sequence of impressions that carves up time. A baby's cry drowns out everything else. Instead of a symphony, now I hear an outburst and the noise assails and it haunts me. I cannot close anything as I would my eyes to shut it out. Noise overwhelms me with uncertainty because of the very fact of its sequence. Where is it coming from? What does it proclaim? I cannot avoid asking these temporal questions. A sound is never clear and plain by itself. It always brings questions with it. Along, alone among all sounds there is, is one that is particularly important to us, the spoken word. It ushers into another dimension, relationship with other living beings. The word is a particularly human sound which differentiates us from everything else. And in this connection, a fundamental difference between seeing and hearing is, apparently, is immediately apparent. In seeing, the living being is one form among many, The human being has a special shape and colour, but he he is included with all the rest as part of the landscape, a discrete moving speck. But when I hear speech, however, the human being becomes qualitatively different 
from everything else. Jacques Ellul goes on to say how images have taken over our society and images have taken over our version of reality and we've forgotten how to think and we've forgotten how to listen and we've forgotten how we're connected to the rest of the world. And he argues that hearing is way more important than seeing. After reading the book, I was like, oh, give me eyesight over deafness any day. Like any day. After reading the book, I was like, wow. Hearing because you can't see opens up a world of imagination, opens a response. Seeing, you see the reality before you. There is no, no sense of imagination. He is of faith, and so he later on talks about Jesus being the living word and how as a society that is addicted to images, and he wrote this in the 70s, so this isn't even with Instagram and Facebook and everything else that we now have, if only he was still alive. He uh, argues that the more images there are, the more we lend ourselves to conformity. If that's not a prophecy, I'm not sure what is. But either way, our senses are vitally important and our eyes and our ears being probably um, up there with the main two, although those who've lost their smell would argue otherwise. But I want to come to a passage in the Bible where Jesus hits this directly in Matthew 13, verse 14 to 16. And he says, you'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. Other versions say hardened. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. I have been perplexed by this passage since I first read it in my teenage years. I don't understand why would Jesus not want them to turn so that he could heal them. And why is it that he has enabled their ears and their eyes to be closed off to another reality that they can't see or hear, even though it's directly before them? In this case, Jesus himself as the anointed one, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah. And he's telling them parables about his kingdom, always talking in metaphors. It's like this, it's like that. In this case, he's talking about the state of people's hearts. Some are hardened. Some are like concrete. Some are like um, thin, uh, you know, planting the word. But they fall on thin places where there's no roots to grow. And the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth cloud the people. And so he's speaking this message to people who have got eyes to see and ears to hear. And at this stage, he's only looking for those people. And the vast majority reject him and they reject this word. He's out there looking for people who have got eyes to see and ears to hear because he's calling a particular group for this time to raise up to then let everybody else know. And at this stage, he was talking to the disciples. And even then, Jesus is like, you're only really beginning to see, like you haven't really got it. But he's actually quoting a passage from Isaiah 6 where God directly says to Isaiah, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. A few different words in there, but pretty much the same passage, right? This is one of the very few, if not the only, I haven't looked up the facts, of Old Testament prophecies that are quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. Acts considered the fifth gospel. Five gospels quote this. There is something about seeing and hearing, and in this context, Jesus is like, there's a whole world out there that you can't yet see. 
There is a whole world of my glory that you don't yet know. And that glory changes your hearts and that changed heart changes what you see and that changed heart changes what you hear. And I'm here to bring you my glory for those who've got eyes to see and ears to hear. What the Isaiah passage is speaking on, which Matthew is just hinting at, is a concept that I'm just going to put out there, see what it does to your emotions. I guess you should see it first before I speak about it. It's talking about idols. This particular part of Isaiah from 1 to 25, this series of judgment comes out across his people because for decades, if not centuries, God has been speaking to his people, looking for their hearts to turn to him so they can be a light, they can show his glory to the nations. But they like what they can see. What's tactile? What's measurable? And they run after the gods of the other nations. It's a fascinating theme throughout the whole Bible, this interplay between God's glory, desperate to break out, and God's people pursuing idols and then hardening hearts, deafening ears, and not being able to directly engage with what this God is doing. I don't know whether you heard that and went, okay, something about statues or something of irrelevance or idols. Okay, I think they've got some in Cambodia um, or India or whatnot. But these things are real. They're in my life. They're in yours. They're in our church. Just because we can put a Christian veneer over so much stuff doesn't mean this stuff actually isn't robbing us from who God is and what he wants to be. So an idol according to Luther, is whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. And G.K. Beale, what your heart clings to or relies upon for ultimate security. Sometimes we don't know what that stuff is because it's so, so much a natural part of our life, but the minute that thing is threatened or the minute that thing is taken away, ouch, the anxiety comes up, the fears come up. And throughout the Old Testament, there was genuinely statues, and there was many, many statues. There, were, there was heaps of them. And the gods worshipped, or the gods were considered to enter these idols, and the people worshipped the idols. They weren't that dumb to think that what they made was the god, but they did believe that the spirit of that god entered that tangible icon. And so they would bow down and worship that God. And so idols throughout the Old Testament are always about statues, baals, asherah poles, things like that, which make it really difficult for us to connect to. The New Testament is different. Anyone got any idea what the idolatry is in the New Testament? What prevents people from engaging with the glory of God? tradition, religion. That staggers me. That a religion centred around the worship of God was actually the very thing that prevented people from seeing this new thing that God was doing. I find that really confronting. To the Pharisees particularly, who at that time were very respected, even Jesus was considered a Pharisee because the top of the top of the Jews, the top of the rabbis, they knew the law so well. They could tell you what to do in any situation. Do this, don't do that. It was very clear cut. It was very black and white. They had turned the Ten Commandments into 613 rules and regulations just to make sure you weren't guilty of breaking any of it. It was a religion of captivity. 
but so caught up, their eyes and their ears were shaped by this religion and shaped by this understanding that they actually couldn't see God in person tangibly before them. The Messiah who is prophesied about countless times through the prophets, the anointed one who is going to come and show them the way, this king who is going to come, this Messiah who is going to come is in their midst. But they are so shaped by what they've dedicated their lives around, even religion, that they miss out on the saviour of the world in their midst. And so he goes out to the alleyways and he goes out to the hidden places and he spends time with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and those with leprosy. And he goes, I'm going to go to where whoever is hungry for my message. I find it confronting. I'm a, I think I was born a Christian. I don't know life without Jesus. So if there's a tendency for me to go to an idol, it's not a Shirith poles. It's tradition, religion, what I know, what I can control, what I can decide is right, what I can decide is wrong, my expectations. And if I'm not careful, my ideals actually keep me in judgment. If you're not careful, your ideals keep you in judgment. If you're not careful, your ideals and expectations keep other people in judgment. Instead of this freedom of the glory of God being free to just flow, It's got to fit all these boxes of standards, expectations, and that's my propensity that I I have to consistently be aware of. And not only that, I I work for God full-time, so it's extra hard. Old Testament statues, New Testament was tradition. What is now? It's an open-ended question. Feel free to chuck anything out. If we were to talk about whatever your heart relies on for security, whatever you have faith in, whatever you trust in, what you pursue for security, what are today's idols? Coffee. Coffee. That is so true. Although I made a really bad one this morning. It was like three cups of coffee in one. I don't think I ever want to drink coffee again. It was really strong. Autonomy. Autonomy. Coffee. Boom. Oh, oh, that's a really good point. Can we go back? (laughs) Problem with idols. (laughs) They're glory stealers. They're terrible counterfeits. They give the illusion and the appearance of something that can mirror back to me, something I can reflect. But they actually rob and steal the glory. And so when Jesus in, in John 10 says, I've come to give you life and give it to the full and freedom and abundance and blessing... The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And more often than not, he'll use our own deceptive hearts to do his work for him. Your greatest enemy is not the enemy, it's your heart. And so as Beck beautifully said, oh, this is another good point. This is what happens when you don't follow your notes. (laughs) Guys, I'm so sorry. And in addition to that... (laughs) Because we are created to reflect, we become whatever we worship. We become what we worship. Psalm 115 and Psalm 135 both talk about this and they go, idols that have a mouth but cannot speak and idols that have eyes but they cannot see and idols that have ears but they cannot hear. Those who love them will become like them. And so will those who trust in them. In other words, idols that can't see, idols that can't speak, idols that can't hear, 
If we worship them, if we orientate our lives around them, we also become blind, deaf, mute. It was worth backtracking, right? Because it's a really good point. It's an important point. But today, Beck's right. And I have to say, I struggled putting this message together. This message was message constipation. doesn't always happen. But it was really, really hard to put this together. And the reason it was hard to put together because I was like, really, God? Like, this is so red 101. I'm so sick of speaking about this stuff. It's all in our slogan more than me. So if you guys haven't figured it out yet, just keep looking at the slogan. This whole thing about self. Wanted to take this in a different direction. And, you know, everything I was reading about contemporary Christianity came back to self, self, self. So here we go. But there's good news in all of this, okay? But we've just got to go there for a second. David Wells says that much of the church today is in captivity to an idolatry of the self. It is idolatry as pervasive as spiritual and as spiritually debilitating as were many of the entanglements with pagan religions recounted for us in the Old Testament. And the end result is no less devastating. Much the self is no less what? Because the self is no less demanding. It is a pride that leads us to think much about ourselves and much of ourselves. And the great late Eugene Peterson, the greatest idolatry of the church today is an excessive self-focus. And he's not even talking about the world. This is his understanding of contemporary evangelical Christian culture where self has become the golden calf and self has toppled God from his rightful place. And if you worship, if you become what you worship and you worship self, what do you end up with? If self is designed to reflect the glory of God and that is not reflecting the glory of God, it's a loop on itself, what do you end up with? One way you end up with a moon that can't reflect the sun, the moon's glory is because of the sun's radiance that comes off it as its reflector. But I'm convinced, and I know it's not as simple as this, but I'm just going to lay that out there. There is a reason why anxiety and depression is rampant at the moment. Because we can't reflect something that hasn't given us meaning. We, can't, we haven't got glory, we haven't got identity outside of who God is and what he wants to be for us. And so we get to taste hell because we're disconnected from the very one who wants to tell us who we are. And I feel like this is such a basic message, but I can't help but feel that God's really wanting to instill that in us today. And there's a message in this for each person, including myself. If you are under 30 or just over it, you have grown up with a message that tells you you are special. You are special, you are special. 1980s, parenting curriculums, educational curriculums, teaching curriculums, all became obsessed with the special message because they saw the effects of kids not having a sense of healthy esteem. So let's just tell them those special stickers, names, everything. I've had chats to Sue about this. Please don't tell the kids they're special. (laughs) Not because they're not, but as Mark hinted at the other day, if everyone's special, then no one is special. But not only that, the same psychologists that did the whole you are special message and they waved that flag, please tell the kids they're special, please tell the kids they're special, tell them, tell them and tell them again, are now 30 years on shaking their heads going, shivers, look what we've done. We have not raised a generation with a healthy sense of self. 
with a healthy sense of understanding of who they are and connection to others and the world around them, we have raised, quote, unquote, an army of narcissists who think that the whole world revolves around them. And why are they special? Because they exist. The irony with narcissism as a psychologist unpack this, go, narcissism is actually at its core fear of inadequacy, inability to know who you are, and a disconnection with self and others. That genuine self-esteem, if we even want to use that word, comes from relationship outside of oneself, connection to a broader story, perseverance, goal setting through suffering. And so now we have a generation that look great on the outside like really ripe strawberries but are bruised on the inside and it doesn't take much to topple them. And I don't say that as someone who's just a touch bit older. I say that as someone as we're losing a generation who don't know how to live with suffering and face life and persevere and set goals, who are racked with anxiety and emotional discord because they don't know how to troubleshoot and who are overwhelmed on a 12-hour contact week. And I don't say that to be trite or even cute. I say that to go, why are they overwhelmed with the 12-hour contact week? They're overwhelmed because they don't know how to process their internal world. Because their world has told them and their Christian world has told them, Jeremiah 29, 11, just follow your true self and your true self is special and you're going to be a world changer. That's one of many examples where self has taken over. I could go on more. And as I said before, there's a different message in this for different people, depending where you're at. But there is this saying that goes out there, to your own self be true, but what if you don't even know who that self is and because you don't know who it is, you're having to fabricate it and make it. And it's actually not true to who you are. And so when the Bible talks this through, you hear it um, peppered throughout. And there's two types of phrases that talk about. They talk about they exchanged God's glory they exchanged God's glory. They had it. We had it. We had, we had his glory and we exchanged it for lies. Romans 1.25. For images. Romans 1.23. Jeremiah 2. For broken cisterns that can't hold water. Or another version is great. They, they pursued emptiness and became empty. But there's these other passages that say they exchanged not God's glory, they exchanged their glory. Their glory, your glory. You have glory, you had glory, you have glory. I don't know if you've thought about that, but you do. And Psalm 106 says, for images something that would reflect back to them what they wanted to be. And Hosea, too often not read book. They exchanged their glory for shame. And so on one side of the fence, we have this narcissistic message that says, you are special, the world revolves around you, you can do whatever it is you set your mind to. If that has not been cooked in a crucible and shaped from the inside out, we end up in the despair of pursuing something that actually can't offer us anything anyway. But then on the other hand, we have this ingrained sense of shame. 
And so one of my arguments I want to make today, if you're a note taker, write this one down. Because of this blend of narcissism and shame, we live with a curious mingling of self-admiration with a guilty fear that God is against us. That's not nice. Haunts us, shapes us, our thinking, our ideals of ourselves, our expectations of others. We know it's by grace, but what if we don't do enough? What if we're not enough? Shame is essentially Brene Brown, later doctor, just heard about her. If you haven't heard about her, don't feel shame, it's okay. She's good. She's really good. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and unworthy of acceptance and belonging. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to or a goal that we've not accomplished makes us unworthy of connection. Hands up if you've heard of Brene Brown. There'll be a smattering of people. Brene is a sociologist, researcher, became famous in 2012 by doing an excellent TED Talk. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to, on vulnerability. And through all her research, she discovered that the, it doesn't matter who you are, what race you're from, what socioeconomic class you're on, what gender you are, every single human being is wired for connection. She wasn't surprised by that, but that's good. Continues her research, 10 years' worth of research. And at the end of her research has a literal breakdown, not just a quaint, I had a breakdown. No, no, a really bad one. Because she discovered that the ingredient to connection is vulnerability. And by vulnerability, I don't mean let's just share all our sins and all our whatever. It's not that. It's not hiding from shame. She had a breakdown because she was very proficient, she was very controlled, she had her life in order, she could tell what needed to happen when, uh, she obviously is very smart, and yet all the research of the very thing she was studying was telling her the opposite about herself. Through that crisis, she ends up going back to church, she had a Christian upbringing, goes back to church, there's a beautiful testimonial, only goes for six minutes, and she starts talking about the vulnerability of Jesus. But before she gets there, she says, you know, I just went to church because I just wanted my pain to go away. And she's kind of admitting it to, like, like as if it's a bad thing. But let's face it, I think we all do that. I just wanted my pain to go away. She goes, I thought the church would take my pain away. And then I realized that, that the church isn't the one that takes my pain away. The church is the midwife cheering me on to show me how I can take my own pain away. And then she talks about Jesus and his vulnerability of who he is and his most ridiculous story of a creator coming down out of his glory to live and breathe with people to take away their shame. This is the gospel message. This is our story. We do have shame because we did do something wrong. Thanks, Adam and Eve, but I can't blame them because I would have done exactly the same thing. And so we end up in this space where this connection is broken because the connection is broken. We protect and we project an identity that we think the world wants to see. We create fortresses of security, whether it's understanding of family, career, house, whatever it is, it'll be different for each one of us, but the the drive is the same. And instead of worshipping the creator, which we're designed to do, we worship creation. And in worshipping creation, we become our own creator, our own healer and our own sustainer. I don't know about you, I'm sick of myself. I'm so sick of myself. And so as we know, again, nothing new. The creator himself comes. For anyone who's got eyes to see and ears to hear, what he's got to say. 
and I come in the fullness of the glory of God. I am not just a reflection of God's image. I am the perfect image. And so the gospel writers talk about in different ways a light that comes to the darkness. But the darkness has not understood it. My sister is an OT, like every second Christian female. Which is not, it's just interesting. She was looking after blind children, working for Vision Australia, and it was in a house, and she walked past the house. She could hear the brother and sister, they were both blind, twins, both born blind, playing, and they were in the dark. So just, you know, turns the light on, walks by. No difference. Light could be off, light could be it doesn't make any difference, because they're blind. The light is on. Not just these extra bright ones that, that was my fault, turn them off before. I'm talking about to what's going on in your soul. I'm talking about those fears and insecurities, those what ifs. And I'm particularly talking about that shame, that excruciating feeling that tells you you are not good enough. That tape that goes into your head that says that you are not enough and that says, who do you think you are? And that can come out in passivity and timidity, but it can also come out in strength and bluff and bravado. It doesn't matter. The root problem is still the same. And so Jesus, who is the fullness of this glory, everything he does is to reverse all of that back. And so Hebrews, so beautiful in its version of this, is that for the joy set before him, he endures the agony of the cross and conquers its shame. This is a message we can never hear too often because it loves to creep back. 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, great set of passages, talks about how because of this, there was an old government that created shame. In this case, he's talking about those 613 rules that if you broke them, like, you're just done, you're gone, you're not pleasing to God, you're not pleasing to others, you're not pleasing to yourself. And then Paul is talking about, no, no, that old government is gone. It's actually gone. It's now replaced with the opposite. It's replaced with honour and glory. And I'm not saying, oh, let's build our idols back up. No, no, I'm saying this is your identity. This is who, who you are. That we had the glory. This is the glory. And we exchanged it for shame. Christian in our pre-service prayer time this morning, spot on, and he just had this thing and he was like, so I was in Smith Street in these really crappy toilets. And a bunch of people were like, yeah, I know the ones. I'm like, okay. And he goes, and I had to lock the door and then I was overcome by this fear of what if I had to live here forever? <laughs> but that's shame. Stinky. Dirty. Gross. And it doesn't matter how much time, how many times you try to clean it or how many times you flush it down the toilet. There you are. That is a real part of us because that disconnection from the one who told us who we are is real. It's not a Sunday school story. It's real. And yet Jesus goes, nah. I'm bringing it back. I've exchanged it back. The exchange has happened. It's no longer real. It's no longer true. It is not who you are. So that doesn't mean we make more of that. That just means, no, that's who you are, neutral. You are the moon who reflects the sun. You become a mirror of God's glory because you're made in his image and he is so excited about releasing that. 
not out of striving, not out of ambition, not out of expectations of yourself, not out of the self that you thought you were meant to be because it's what your family said or the self that you thought you were meant to be because all those people said. None of that. Delete. Neutral. The story of your life now. It's not about getting to heaven when you die. It's about, no, 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 discovering who you are because of the glory of this son whose life wants to desperately be in you. You become that image bearer. For this to happen, he is after the self. He's after the self that has been created that helps you create a fortress just to cope. He's after the self that has become whatever it has because of what it's reflecting and what it's mirroring. He needs that self for him to exchange what he bought for And that's going to be a spectrum. There's going to be stuff in here. There's going to be behaviours that you know that you're not meant to be doing, but you're stuck with it. You're addicted to it and you can't help. You don't know how to get out of it, and that's going to be over there in that bucket. There's going to be roles and there's going to be identity. There's going to be a sense of Christian expectations over here because that's what you've decided makes the best Christian for you to be. And Jesus is over there going, no, it's actually over here. I've got something else. That's the good one because this one's exhausting. This one's hard. It's hard on you and it's hard on others. And he goes, the glory of me is you fully alive and I want to release it. Because the connection is back. So, to quote Jesus himself from Luke 19, anyone who tends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way to go. It's my way my way to find in yourself and what good would it be to get everything you want but to lose the real you it's the message version and so we clearly don't have time i'm about to come to a close but 2 corinthians 3 and 4 i invite you to go home read it uh, in your mid-sized groups in your small groups in your triads and what we see here is that through that the old government has gone the old condemnation gone The new scripts of honour and glory of God's identity, not because of you, but because of him, wants to invade and fill your life and you become mirrors who brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. Every now and then you see this in a person and it's such a fragrance, it's compelling. And the irony is you don't end up thinking much of them, you end up thinking much of God. Who is this person that they're so free? They've got peace despite circumstances. Because they're living from a completely different world that you can't necessarily see with your eyes, but you see with the spirit and you hear with your spiritual ears. Corinthians goes on to say that your life becomes a letter handwritten from God because you've got a story to tell. And it becomes brighter and more beautiful as God himself enters your life and you become more like him. It's not shame to fame because we've got this misguided sense of glory, particularly if we grew up in the 80s. It's glory in our everyday, simple lives. This is Corinthians in unadorned pots of clay, where he's the potter and you are the clay and he gets to remould you and he gets to shape you. You don't get to choose what identity you have. He gets to reveal it to you and that is so exciting. It's probably different to what you expect. 
It will have something to do with the lies that the enemy has told you your whole life because his glory will often be the opposite to that. The story of your life is the story of the one who knows who you could be but fears it. And so has deliberately concocted a story and a scenario to prevent you from walking into the very freedom that you're designed to be released into. And this is in our everyday where because of this glory creator, this God of glory who wants to infuse your life with his life, wherever you go, there's his glory. He's interested not in the special. He's interested in the everyday. He's interested in your home being a temple. He's interested in your work being a temple. He's interested in your relationships being a temple. He's interested in your shopping spree being a temple. He's interested in all of it being just bearers of his glory. That's it. That is it. That is the point to your life. It's not about what am I meant to do? What am I not meant to do? It's all irrelevant. Your only job is to reflect his glory. And that's as relevant to an orphan in India, as it is to someone who's been following Jesus for 55 years. It's the same story for all of us. We are all equal to it. And as 2 Corinthians 4 goes on, this is all about the Spirit. You cannot will yourself into this. I've tried. It does not work. It actually just creates more captivity. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And it's the people who make me look again or who I feel compelled by, what they are marked by more than anything is freedom. They're not trying to prove anything. They're not trying to make you be something that is a projection of what they're needing. They're just free. And the most beautiful thing about their freedom is that all of a sudden you find your freedom because all of a sudden there's no standards that you're meant to oblige. It's freedom. So whatever this means for you, whatever this message is for you, I'm pretty sure that the Lord really wants to fill this place with his abundance. He wants to use his church for his glory. And there are some people here, as I said before, there's some lifestyle stuff that just, you know, needs to stop, but you haven't been able to do it because you're trying to do it with your will. And he's going, you need my spirit to give you the strength and to bring you the freedom and to break strongholds. And it's time, we're doing that now. Like, it's time. I've had enough. <laughs> I've had enough of you having enough, but let's just deal with this. Second person I felt as I was praying to this is that there's a, there's a group of people here who are dependent on past growth. But that's the past. We go from glory to glory. It just keeps going. He's got more. He wants to do more. Kath had had a picture, um, a dream of people um, playing VHS tapes over and over. Do you remember them? She's like, God, what's that about? He's like... Oh, people, people keep looking to the past. I'm now on MP3. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really cute because I'm a Luddite. But it's true. Stop looking to the past. Stop looking to the future with the expectations of the past. He's doing a completely new thing. And for that new thing to happen, we need to go praise him for that growth because it's incredible and it was incredible and it will never leave you because it's your story. It's part of that handwritten letter. But he's saying, I want to do more. I've got more. That's the second person. And the third person is that you're just desperately seeking more of the Spirit and you don't know how to get it. And so as we come forward to communion, which Kate Sayers aptly calls union, where we get, this is not just drink and food, this is the very vehicle to which that disconnection, that 
was real is real actually is absolved. That this drink cleanses the shame, the guilt, the condemnation. This is real. So as we come forward to communion, if you're visiting, we we have it on the left, the right. We like to kneel as an act of surrender and submission. Have a think about these things. Are you someone that is needing to just stop that lifestyle thing because you know it's stopping God doing stuff in your life? Are you someone who's dependent on past growth and you know you need new growth? Are you someone that just wants more of the Spirit? So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come. That who you are is way more effective and way better than any words I could conjure up this morning. And so I ask and I pray that you would be released to do the work that only you can do. And I ask and pray first and foremost that people would have an encounter of your presence and who you are. That in the light of your glorious grace and your majesty and your glory, everything just dissolves away. And so I want to ask a particular favour for those who, who need that for themselves this morning. But I ask, Mighty Father, for your spirit to come to bring freedom where we need it, for strongholds to be broken, for us to be marked by a church that are truly image bearers of the glory of God, that your glory would come through us because we're fully alive. In the power of your wonderful name, amen.